Welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Director of Outreach for the Naval Institute. Joining me is my usual co-host, retired Navy Captain Bill Hamlet, the Editor-in-Chief of Proceedings Magazine. Hello, Bill. Hello, Ward. So we've had kind of a wacky schedule with uh, all of the other things that we've been doing, and we appreciate the audience um, indulging us with the weird op tempo here. Yeah, Um, we've been less on Wednesdays than we, I think, have been on other days of the week the last couple months. Yeah, but summertime, holiday weekends, board meetings, uh, your schedule, my travel schedule, et cetera, a lot, lot going on. So the good news is we're out there with the people delivering the the good words about the things going on at the Naval Institute. Um, and the other good news is because it's a podcast, if you guys subscribe on iTunes, you'll get it automatic, automatically pushed uh, to your uh, folder on iTunes or your queue. Right. Um, and, you, and you can get it as soon as it comes out. Um, otherwise, we'll uh, give you a heads up uh, periodically via whatever means um, to when it's when it lives on SoundCloud. Um, so whatever, you know, that's the beauty of a podcast is it's sort of on demand and you can listen to it. You don't have to tune in at any special time. Um, but I guess the most surefire way is we'll always be up Facebook live when we do the show. Um, so that's your heads up to, you know, look for it on iTunes or, uh, on SoundCloud. And as a reminder on iTunes, if you enter Naval Institute, uh, in the search box there, it'll drive you to the Proceedings Podcast. For some reason, if you put in Proceedings, it will not come up with Proceedings Podcast. So uh, search Naval Institute and subscribe. Um, that's the most surefire way. Otherwise, check us out on SoundCloud.com. Again, the search term, term is U.S. Naval Institute. And you can find all the shows as well as a lot of other cool uh, audio content from our Oral History Archives, which is some amazing stuff there as well. So a rich body of content at that uh, site as well. So uh, we're happy to be on air today. A lot has happened in the last week. As I mentioned last show, tomorrow um, I'm headed for New London to be at the Coast Guard Academy. Uh, Bill's deputy, we call him Bill Jr. or Billy Bray. Bill Bill 2. Bill 2. Um, thing, the deputy, thing one and thing, thing one two. and thing two, yeah. both Intel officers, both uh, retired 06s, both academy grads. Um, they don't look alike in person, uh, so <laughs> we don't have to get mixed up here around Beach Hall. But in any case, Bill, too, is also going up there to the Coast Guard Academy. We're very excited um, to do this is an annual event that we do up there. Um, Admiral Thad Allen will be the moderator of uh, this panel where we're talking about current issues uh, that the Coast Guard is dealing with. This is hurricane season, and as we speak, uh, Hurricane Florence is bearing down on, on I the believe, East Coast. Yeah. Well, North Carolina, S- North I think Carolina, South Carolina, at. somewhere in there, yep. Yeah, my younger son lives in Wilmington, and they're getting very prepared. Uh, the ships in Norfolk are about to put to sea, and the airplanes at Oceana will be flying to, um, I think they still go to Wright Pat. Um, as the usual Huravac plan, but uh, anybody in the audience who's ever done that knows what that's all about. Um, and uh, it's this time of year, right, where hurricanes are happening, but the Coast Guard specifically really does uh, earn their paychecks during this time of year. And we remember last year when we were slammed by three hurricanes in rapid succession, um, and uh, the Coast Guard really did save a lot of lives last summer. So it's timely that we would be talking with the Coast Guard folks. So we're looking forward to doing that tomorrow. And that 
that conference is called Disaster Will Strike. Are you prepared, right? And uh, a bunch of junior, mainly junior officers in that panel that's going to be moderated, as you, as you said, by Vice Admiral or by Admiral uh, retired Allen. Yeah. Uh, but JOs who participated in disaster relief, Hurricane Maria, uh, mudslides up in the Pacific Northwest, uh, you know, just a number of things uh, that, you know, that happened um, where, you know, they're out on Coast Guard cutters or they're on emergency response, they're helicopter pilots, and suddenly you find yourself, uh, you know, in the midst of a big disaster, helping with the disaster and, and uh, you know, humanitarian assistance kind of uh, mission. So uh, it should be a great conversation. And then you remember that Admiral Allen came to national prominence when he took over the leadership around Katrina. Um, right. and, and so, again, he knows a lot about this topic. So that's going to be a, a, a good one. So um, we'll be recording it, and it'll be on our YouTube channel. Um, it's not being live or webcast, so you won't be able to see it real time. But look at the Naval Institute's YouTube channel shortly thereafter, and you'll be able to, uh, to see it. And certainly we'll be doing some uh, excerpts or the entire thing as a proceedings article uh, in the future. So a lot going on. Uh, another, oh, by the way, uh, we've started doing our sponsored student program in earnest because it's back to school time. So uh, both academies, which is to say the Coast Guard Academy and the Naval Academy, and a whole bunch of NROTC units nationwide. So if you are currently a midshipman, uh, look for your professor of Naval Science to come to you very soon and uh, deliver the gift. Uh, and, uh, you, you know, hopefully your school is one of those. Uh, if it's not, go to your PNS and ask that he uh, com- communicate with the Naval Institute, with us here, and, and we'll try to get you a donor. It's a very cool program for those who aren't familiar. Basically, benevolent donors uh, uh, donate the money to give sponsored student memberships. It's not free. It's a student membership, so that's at the $20 rate per head. So it's ethically uh, good to go, um, and you get a year membership to the Naval Institute as a way to introduce you to this forum. And those who have have uh, experienced this are very much believers, um, and they look forward to getting this gift during their entire under, undergraduate life. We're doing it to more and more schoolhouses. It's a very cool program. So uh, heads up, and if you're in a sponsored school and you got it last year, Remember, that's a one-year membership, so you're about to lapse. There has been some confusion uh, from some of the mids. are like, oh, I already got it. Remember, it's only a one-year membership, so when you get the opportunity to get the gift again, you need to accept it once again. And uh, again, no money, no credit card information. All we're giving you is membership to the Naval Institute, which is your professional association. It's an amazing resource that includes things like um, this podcast. Uh, so, uh, heads up. Um, what else we got going on? Anything else that we uh, we should talk about before we uh, turn to our yeah, guests? Highlights of coming attractions. Uh, we heard uh, on Friday that uh, former Secretary of the Navy John Lehman has agreed to be a guest on the podcast on the 9th of October. So, Secretary Lehman's written a book. Uh, many of our uh, readers will be familiar with this one. It's called Oceans Ventured. It's a story of uh, the uh, maritime strategy that the Reagan administration had to uh, counter the Soviet Navy at sea uh, and to bring the U.S. Navy to the periphery of uh, of Europe and uh, also the 
Eurasian continent on both both coasts, uh, operate aircraft carriers up off of Kamchatka in the Pacific and up off of the coast of Norway in the Atlantic. Uh, John Lehman, uh, in his book, cites uh, proceedings of the Naval Institute, the Open Forum, a, a number of places as a significant part of that, uh, the development and the conversations around the maritime strategy and the, impor- the importance of it. He also specifically cites the the culture of critique that was uh, supported by proceedings. So we reached out and asked him if he'd be on the podcast, and he agreed. So on 9 October, we'll have Secretary John Lehman uh, on the podcast. I'm very excited about that. Uh, that's a big name, and if you've never heard of him, um, you should get smart on who he is. Um, he was the Secretary of the Navy during the Reagan administration, arguably the most influential SECNAV in modern times. 600-ship Navy, um, all kinds of things that he instituted um, uh, that, that really were game changers. So um, he's very well-spoken, opinionated. Uh, he'll pull no punches. It, this should be a fantastic conversation. So we very much uh, entreat you to tune in for that show. All right. Should we go to today's guest? Yeah, why don't guest? we get to our guest? Okay. So in the August issue of Proceedings, uh, we've been trying to get her on the podcast now for a, for a little while and just making everybody's schedule line up. We've got uh, uh, live right now from... Uh, Quantico, Virginia, Major Valerie McGuire. She is an instructor at the basic school at uh, Quantico. Uh, And for her career path, she's been a um, an 0202, which is a Marine Corps MAGTAF intelligence officer. And she wrote an article for proceedings called Hybrid Warfare Helps Russia Level the Playing Field. Uh, In it, she talks about what's called the Gerasimov Doctrine, uh, which is uh, very influential in the way that Russia is uh, wielding influence, wielding its military, and also its informational power uh, in 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 the current um, global landscape. So, uh, Major McGuire, welcome to the Proceedings Podcast. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's good to be here. Thank you for having me. Uh, so, what's your job? What's your particular job right now at TBS? What part of the uh, the TBS curriculum do you teach? So I'm actually in charge of the MAGTAF section within the warfighting group, and what we do is we each of the sections has a group of uh, events that are underneath that that we're responsible for. So I actually have captains that teach a range of platforms and our OICs for events for fires package, counterinsurgency, um, COP2, a bunch of different platforms within MAGTAF that we really use to support the POI. Cool. What's, yeah. what's the most fun Great. part of it? What's the, I'm sorry? What's, what's the most fun part of the job? Oh, the funnest part of the job really is, is seeing the lieutenants and remembering what it was like to be here uh, as a student uh, and just getting back to the basics and understanding that it's such a transformation process from wherever they come from, from their uh, commissioning source to where they're at now, and really the transformation process that occurs over the six-month period. Um, they start here with the basics, and, and you really are doing your best every day to give them the tools that they need to be successful in the operating forces uh, as an officer in the United States Marine Corps. Very cool. How many yeah. years ago did you go to go through TBS? What year? Well, yeah, how many years ago was it? Oh, this was uh, 2007 to 2008 Fox Company, which is a winter company. I'm a California girl at heart, and so me and the cold do not get along. <laughs> so I did not plan that very well to go to a, a winter TBS. But you survived. I did survive, and I, I mean, it made me stronger, I'm sure. And that might have prepared you to write about Russia and Russia's uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, right. There's a connection defense there, strategy. Sure. Yeah. So, so moving to your article, Hybrid Warfare and How It Helps Russia Level the Playing Field. So you point out here 
that Russia's got a defense budget of about 40, $42 billion in 2017, which is a mere 6% of the U.S. defense budget. Despite that, one could argue that the Russians are doing some pretty unique and um, you know, sort of interesting things with their with their small uh, you know defense force compared to the U.S. Yeah, defense for sure. force, right? So hi- highlight some of those things, and and uh, you know, uh, what what caused you to write this article, uh, and what are the biggest concerns you have as you did the research for this, and you thought, geez, this is this is pretty, um, uh, you know, this is game changing. It is. So I'll tell you the reason why I decided to choose this as uh, my thesis at Marine Corps Command and Staff College is. I came from 1st Marine Division, Blue Diamond, where I was uh, part of the G2, and we transitioned while I was there to executing operations against a hybrid threat in our division-level exercises. And no one really uh, seemed to understand what that meant. I surely didn't understand what that meant. Uh, And I walked away from that experience in the G2 really curious about what did this mean and what should we be talking about in the services to be better prepared to counter a hybrid threat. Uh, And so as I started to dig into what hybrid warfare was and how uh, strategic competitors such as Russia are using it to really level the playing field, the more interested I became. You know, we talked about the budget, and uh, it's interesting with their small budget, how much they're able to do to influence the operating environment. Um, We're looking at a time where strategic competitors aren't looking to counter the United States on a technology-by-technology basis. They have to find other means to destabilize the operating environment, and that's where I think hybrid warfare really comes into play because there's so much they can do with a small budget that really has profound effects, both operationally and strategically. So what are some of those elements? Because when you say that, that very much is going to resonate with the the listeners. because, you know, we've just had a NDAA-approved, quote-unquote, um, at, a, at a record amount of $724 billion. Yeah. There's a lot of criticism on the other side of the aisle about the size of the defense budget. There's a lot of criticism of the procurement process um, <laughs> in terms of how long it takes to get something that ultimately isn't quite what we need to counter, especially in a peer threat environment. What yep. are they doing um, that uh, that is making this, I don't maybe work is the wrong word, but what are they doing with respect to what you're talking about there? So I would say that the important things that I learned about particularly Russia's hybrid warfare capabilities is that they're using things across the range of military and non-military capabilities. So cyber attacks, use of proxies, energy politics, uh, economic manipulation, uh, covert employment of their special operations forces. So things that are not necessarily tied to a large defense budget. You can conduct cyber attacks with a with a one person behind a computer, and that's not going to cost you $700 billion to enable that capability. And you can do that from anywhere, and you can do that covertly. So while the United States seeks to increase its capabilities to counter nuclear weapons and to increase its capabilities in technological platforms, these other state competitors seek ways to level the playing field that don't necessarily cost billions of dollars and years worth of procurement. What I found is they're trying to execute these operations in the gray zone. So that's a term I hadn't really heard before, but that's really operations in between the traditional uh, peace and war context where they don't want a conventional fight versus the United States because they're not prepared. Their budgets don't support being able to counter our 
military defenses, but what they can do is they can destabilize that environment in the pre-war context. So I've found that to be very interesting in doing my research about Russia. So in the article, you know, you've thrown out a couple of uh, uh, of terms. Act, you know, you use uh, gray zone and hybrid war, yep. and uh, you point out that DOD still lacks uh, an accepted definition of hybrid warfare. But you point to a 2010 NATO uh, working group uh, definition, which is threats posed by adversaries with the ability to simultaneously simultaneously employ conventional and non-conventional means adaptively in pursuit of objectives. So I'll just highlight a couple of those things. Conventional and non-conventional means, you said, to stay under the threshold of, you know, full-scale active war, you know, this sort mm-hmm. of gray zone, hybrid warfare, right? We've had a number of articles about hybrid war and gray zone uh, in proceedings in the last couple of years. Um, and then uh, you, you talk a lot about the Gerasimov doctrine. Uh, so, yep. so tell our, our listeners who... Uh, Gerasimov was and why he's important. So Gerasimov was then, when he wrote this article in 2013, the article was titled The Value of Sciences in the Foresight. He was then the chief of the general staff of the Russian Federation Armed Forces. And he wrote an article which basically, which we assessed, outlined how Russia plans on utilizing all of its capabilities to destabilize the operating environment with a big focus on non-military means. Um, And this article was written, as I said, in 2013. And some key things about that where there's some some disagreement in in the professional world is on his use of the term foresight. So we took an analysis of his article that they were talking about Um, how operations are currently being executed um, by Russia to destabilize the operating environment. But really, in the German, or um, excuse me, in the Russian understanding of the word foresight, they were looking at potential future operations and how things might change in the operating environment. And it was almost like they were using the term to look at how the United States is trying to influence the operating environment in the gray zone. So in the... I, I, this article, uh, if for those who haven't seen the issue, this issue yet or uh, didn't have a chance to read it, I mean, it's been on the streets for a while. There's a, a picture of uh, the general with with Vladimir Putin, mm-hmm. who obviously is quite topical in uh, in uh, you know the the media these days. And the article talks a lot about Putin's specific activities and his strategies. So, talk to us a little bit about about what you learned about about Putin. So what I would say is the things that I pulled out from his article, from Drosma's article, was the importance of the role of non-military means. And where I think Putin's role in this is that it's very centralized, where he has the capability to tell all his elements of natural, uh, national power what to do and when, and he can control the operating environment from his position, whereas in the United States we're more decentralized and we have all these different avenues in order to be able to execute certain objectives on the adversary, he's very much in control of the operating environment and how he wish, wishes to play his cards. So hacking an election um, <laughs> is something that's in right in, in keeping with this strategy. Yeah, most definitely. That's definitely a way that he can use information and cyber attacks to influence the operating environment and destabilize without having to execute conventional war. 
Yeah, so you cite a uh, an article called The Gerasimov Doctrine by Molly McHugh, and she's written for Politico and others, and McHugh um, also wrote for Proceedings a couple years ago, when I just after I joined the, uh, the staff here, she came over and had a, a conversation with us about what she had learned about how uh, Russia is uh, trying to manipulate public perceptions in Western Europe. And then, you know, that was before the 2016 election. And, you know, now we know uh, all that was happening mm-hmm. uh, on, on Russia's behalf, uh, you know, here in the uh, political process in the United States, you know, as as agreed upon by, you know, uni- uh, un- unanimously by the heads of all the uh, U.S. intelligence agencies have all said, yes, uh, Russia mm-hmm. definitely meddled in the elections, meddled in public perceptions, etc. Uh, but but you um, have a quote here by Molly McHugh that says, Grasimov took tactics developed by the Soviets, blended them with strategic military thinking about total war, and laid out a new theory of modern warfare, one that looks more like hacking an enemy's society than attacking it head on. Yeah, that's uh, probably one of my favorite quotes that, in the article. Yeah, it's a very, very strong you know, point right. It's like mm-hmm. if if you if your military is one sixth the size or your budget's one sixth the size of the U.S. military, you know you don't want to attack our strengths. You want to attack our weaknesses, right? That's right. And uh, I'm reminded uh, back in a, you know War, Ward and I are both uh, WW Cold War uh, veterans, so uh, we're reminded. We won that one. We, we, don't forget <laughs> it. As as John Lehman points out, yes. we were part of the Navy that won that Cold War. But anyway, uh, so at that time, uh, studying the Soviet Union and some of their tactics, one of the terms that was often used was this thing called active measures, the, mm-hmm. which, which was very much an informational campaign. Uh, and that there, was, there were lots of active measures that the Soviets used, particularly in, in, to undermine democracy, to undermine um, opposition to uh, Soviet advances uh, and and Soviet ideology in Western uh, Europe at the time, uh, and I'm wondering. I see in your article this uh, term called reflexive control theory, yep. RC theory. Uh, does that have roots in this idea of active measures? It, it seemed to to me, but I was curious if that was something that you found in your research. Yeah, so I would say Russia definitely has. Uh, a capability in the information environment that I think the U.S., particularly the Department of Defense, is trying to find their way forward with. But I think Russia has shown historically um, a significant capability to exercise information operations. Um, So the reflexive control theory is something that they've been known to do throughout, I mean, even back during the Cold War, where they try to manipulate perceptions and control the narrative so they can achieve their objectives, and they're quite successful at it. And I think that's a challenge for the United States is to find means to be able to counter that narrative uh, when it occurs, or, well, first of all, to be able to even identify that that's what it is. Um, and I think that's the challenges that we have right now. And how where does the DOD fit in that? And how do we develop capabilities that are going to better prepare our forces to be able to identify and encounter those messages that come out and really to be able to explain that to the population because that's who they're targeting. They're not targeting DOD. They're targeting, you know, their average American citizen, and they're changing perceptions based off of ideas uh, that they want them to, to exploit. So you, you mentioned that you were working in a division-level G2 organization. Uh, yeah. And, and – 
this idea of hybrid warfare became part of the focus of the G2. So, you know, within the Marine Corps, uh, thinking about the current operating environment, thinking about possibly having to go and work with or defend Western Europe, uh, you know, potentially against what we now know in the national defense strategy. Uh, you know, R- Russia and China are are explicitly labeled as our two greatest yep. adversaries, right? Yep. Uh, so, were there specific ideas and tactics or strategies that started to come out in your work in that G two, or that you saw at the Marine Corps Command and Staff College? thinking about things that that could be done to counter you know russian influence campaigns or could be done in the in the information sphere to push back so i'd say when i was at division the biggest challenge is transitioning the tactical operator into how do i interact with some of these hybrid capabilities and i think once we get to the conventional versus conventional fight you'll see you'll still see the information operations the cyber attacks happen but now you're talking you know, the the division level, the infantry level tactics that the Marine Corps is, is known to be able to execute. So they need to understand that other things are happening in the operating environment that are potentially impacting their their tactics on the ground. But I think the thing about the hybrid warfare capability is how do we prevent an escalation of hybrid activities happening in the environment before it gets to that conventional versus conventional strategic competition um, conventional fight. So, are, so that's do, where I think we need to find our niche. I don't know if that's a Department of Defense issue or if that's a whole of government. I would argue it's likely a whole of government approach. Um, but we need to be able to de-escalate hybrid warfare in the gray zone so that by the time we get to the conventional fight, we still have the advantage. Yeah, I, I think this is this is such an important point <laughs> that I, are, are you convinced now, of course, you're in the schoolhouse part of the world, and TDS <laughs> is only worried about things like land nav and, you know, hey, hey, Lieutenant, that's not how you wear your uniform, that kind of stuff, right? Um, but in your military mind, as you look at the, the macro priorities of the Marine Corps, um, do you think we're doing enough um, to, to identify and, and attack this threat, or are we, are we time late? So I tell you, there's been increased um, emphasis on a regular warfare, uh, you could call it a hybrid, um, over the years, probably since 2007 when DOD developed the irregular warfare countering irregular threats joint operating concept. So it's not that we aren't thinking about hybrid slash irregular asymmetric threats. Um, I think it's taking a while for doctrine to catch up. But even in the Marine Corps, we do have specific tasks now Um, to be able to analyze and address uh, these irregular warfare capabilities and these threats in the operating environment. But I still think it's going to take time for us to develop the way forward, how we counter, when it's not a declared war, how do we counter these threats that we're seeing? Whose responsibility is it to counter the cyber attacks or to counter the information warfare campaign on civilian networks? And I think that's something that we still have to figure out and provide the way ahead for. But I think as far as the Marine Corps is concerned, we definitely know that it's a capability that we need to have, and we need to be as capable in conventional warfare as we are in these other spectrums of conflict. Yeah, your point about civilian networks, I, I think, you know, it, it, is, uh, it is clear that Facebook and Twitter uh, and other media companies, right, are part of Vladimir Putin and the Russians' 
battle space. They have mm-hmm. no they have no rules of engagement restrictions on setting up false accounts, putting out false narratives, uh, you know, honey traps, all, you name it. Mm-hmm. On, on using things like Facebook. Yeah, and why would they? I mean, that's brilliant. Right? It that's is a it, brilliant it, it, strategy. It's absolutely a brilliant yep. strategy. But for the U.S. government to push back in that same battle space is illegal, right? It is, yep. it is ex- I mean, it really, it is outright illegal. The U.S. government can't set up false Facebook accounts in Russia or, yep. you know, in any other place. We, we can't do that. And so I, I worked a little bit of this, not related to Russia, but when I was at the National Counterterrorism Center, uh, terrorists were using Facebook in a similar way. They were doing a lot of their mm-hmm. recruiting of terrorists, uh, and particularly outside of the Middle East, including in the United States. They were recruiting people through Facebook and Snapchat and Twitter, yeah. and you, you name it, right? So they're using social media yep. um, against the United States. And and the, the U.S. government couldn't do much about it except to inform those, comp- those media companies that, hey, you might want to look into these four or five or 10 accounts because we think that they're actually nefarious actors and mm-hmm. not, not legitimate actors, right? And so it was a lot of partnership with those media companies to get, um, you know, to get those accounts taken down or to get certain you know, uh, types of posts uh, prohibited, et cetera, change the rules, and then you know, have Facebook or have Twitter go after the users uh, because they were not you know, acting in accordance with the user agreements, right? You have to, you exactly. have to, you have to agree to yeah, be... Yeah, that's, you know, that's to why be I would a, go back to my original point where I think these uh, state competitors have the upper hand when it comes to the execution of hybrid warfare because when you're talking about... Russia and China and a centralized command structure, they can do whatever they want and they don't have to ask permission, whereas in the United States, um, there's a fine line when you talk about infringing on, on, the, on people's rights, and there's a fine balance on how do we prevent their influence without crossing the line and infringing on people's rights to access their Facebook accounts or Twitter. And, and that's something I think as a nation we need to still figure out is where's that line and how do we best prepare ourselves so that we're not influenced unknowingly. So the article is Hybrid Warfare. We're talking to the author, Major Valerie McGuire. Um, Valerie, another thing you talk about, and, and this is in the August issue of Proceedings, uh, the one with the uh, uh, eagle on the cover, um, the, 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 and I hope the audience is, is getting this, but this is not theoretical. This is like current events. This thing should be cross-posted in the uh, you know, every major newspaper, um, because it really is a, uh, these are actual examples of the things that are being bandied about in sometimes in the theoretical. And specifically what jumped out at me when I read it was the Ukraine example. Can you, can you talk a little bit of detail about, about that part of the article? Yeah. So Russia, I mean, Putin successfully, um, created an environment where activities in Crimea and eastern Ukraine could happen, and he utilized all the tools that he had available to create the ripe environment for his strategic objectives. So when you're talking about uh, eastern Ukraine doing things such as purchasing businesses and influencing political elites so that he had people already in the region that he could reach out and have influenced the local population. So it's getting there, and it's very population-centric. Um, having people that he can influence throughout target countries, um, using businessmen and other individuals that are complicit to align the Russian narratives within eastern Ukraine uh, to be able to push his narratives out 
uh, creating propaganda, um, pushing that out through those complicit uh, individuals, and then using what I thought was interesting, coercion and manipulation in the energy markets. So threatening to hold oil from countries and using that as a bargaining tool to obtain his strategic objectives. And these are all tools that can be used just short of conventional war uh, to be able to frame the environment so that he can achieve his objectives in the region. Well, Ukraine is very dependent on Russian natural gas. And mm-hmm. so there were there were times when the, the Russians either jacked the price up through the roof uh, or uh, slowed down the spigot, right? Tightened the spigot so that yep. the Ukrainian uh, uh, economy was hindered uh, and just their ability to heat uh, their apartment buildings and their ability to uh, to, to you know turn electrical turbines uh, to create electricity in the winter time was was severely constrained by the by the Russians uh, and at the same time uh, much of the media in Ukraine was you know controlled by uh, either you know Russian companies or by mm-hmm. proxies as you said you yep. know there were there were complicit uh, you know Russian leaning Ukrainian leaders. Uh, who, who were able to amplify messages that Moscow wanted to be, yep. uh, you know, put forward, and then also decrease the messages uh, that countered the Russian narrative. So, yeah. So, I mean, so not huge... only does he have people in the media outlets that he can reach into and have spread his message, but then he he puts uh, Russian backers into the population and have and he has them um, generate protests that he can then cover with his you know, Russian-aligned media outlets in the neighborhood. So he can easily spread his message, even if it's not on on TV. He has the capability to spread that instantly via social media. Um, the, I mean, the other thing about that is, is um, you know, when you hear Russian oligarchs, right, you're just like, a Russian businessman invested in X, <clears throat> and, and, it, and it's teed up as sort of, you know, that's just, uh, you know, capitalism. That's just commerce. What, what you know, what you're saying is a foot stomper, of you know basically you know you need to pull that string follow the money uh, mm-hmm. and and it, it's it is nefarious there it's not this guy doesn't want to just uh you know be there because it's a a, a pnl opportunity um and these are calculated I, decisions to have the right people in the right place to influence the environment right i i don't think we're sophisticated with with the way we're this is being socialized writ large across the american public you know again that's where this these examples are seriously on point with respect to the national discussion about is Russia an honest broker who we should be friends with or should they be uh, at least scrutinized if not distrusted um so you know th- these are exact examples of what the 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 actual end game is with respect to the highest level of Russian leadership um so that again this this article is super timely um and I and I love it for that re- that reason all right. Well, we have to uh, wrap up here, um, but I wanted to thank you, Major McGuire, for joining us today. Thanks for writing for Proceedings. Yeah, and, thank you uh, for, and, for publishing me and having me on your podcast. Yeah, no, it was, it was great. great. It was a great conversation. Certainly very timely as the uh, investigation grinds on about uh, Russian meddling and influencing in the 2016 elections and as the United States comes up on 2018 midterm elections. And everybody that I have heard, uh, I think the entire intelligence community is once again predicting that there will be Russian meddling in uh, U.S. and also in, in other Western nations' uh, elections. So this is a, um, it's an important article. It's very well re- researched. 
there are uh, examples in your article of um, uh, the doctrine and also how the Soviets or the Russians are, are applying that doctrine today in places like uh, the Ukraine and the Crimean Peninsula and in other Western uh, European nations like, uh, like Germany. So thanks for writing it, and we hope you'll uh, continue to write, it, write for proceedings. Uh, good luck with your uh, second lieutenants down there at TBS. <laughs> yeah, I appreciate uh, that. I'll be uh, I'll be talking to the class uh, golf company on. Uh, okay, well, I hope to see you there on Thursday, the thirteenth. Yeah, Thursday the thirteenth. So uh, at fifteen hundred. So maybe I'll see 1500. you there. Fifteen hundred. Yep. Sure, I'll come come down. And yeah, see please you for do. Sure. That'd be great. And, and the main uh, what's the what's the main hall called there? Uh, are we talking about Graves? No. What's the other one? Oh, Bannon. No, You're talking about the main one where the classrooms are at. Yes. Yep. I'll find you. I've got the schedule. I'll look you up on the calendar, and I'll and I'll make sure to be there so I can shake hands. And again, thank you for having me on your podcast and in your publication. No, awesome. thanks for writing. Fantastic yeah. work. Thanks yeah, you for all me. have a great day, and, I'll, and I'm sure I'll see you on Thursday. Okay, sounds okay, good. Major. Thanks okay, for joining thanks. us out here. Bye. All right. So that was uh, Major Valerie McGuire writing in the August issue of Proceedings called "Hybrid Warfare Helps Russia Level the Playing Field." Another example of how victory begins at the Naval Institute. Thanks. We'll see you next time.